Before I begin, let's ask the Lord's assistance in prayer. Holy Father, we ask that you would guide us, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would touch our hearts. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for dying for our sins. These things are simple requests, but Father, we pray that they would be pleasing to you. Though they be simple, we know that we cannot do them at all, and it is not any of our part to do them for you. And so your grace will be sufficient tonight. Your kindness will be more abundantly than we can ever imagine. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises you have in your gospel. And give us grace tonight. We ask that you would touch your hearts, touch the hearts of your people. May our Christ be lifted up. May the gospel be made plain. Be plain made plain. And please uh, save sinners tonight. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I had gone in one direction as to as to what to preach uh, on on in the evenings, and uh, I had thought perhaps I would go into an epistle, perhaps one way or the other. But I have decided on going into the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are a very special book. Um, it is a book that is not written uh, chronologically. We have many authors in this particular book, and it is uh, a collection of about, a, you know, well, it's not about, there are the 150 psalms, but we have different authors within this particular collection. They are prayers, they are meditations, they're designed many times to be sung with music, they are absolutely designed to be included in the worship, and the psalms are Many of them, uh, I would say about, my memory serves right, 73 were written by King David. We have the sons of Korah writing psalms. We have Asaph. We have even Moses writing psalms. Now, if you've ever been through your Bible and looked page by page, you will notice that if you thumbed through the book of Psalms, there are sections within it. You may see book one, book two, all the way to book five. Now, the Psalms have been divided in these sections uh, and I don't know who. I'm not too sure if anyone knows who. But they weren't divided up in sections of saying, well, these were the first ones, these were the second ones. But they were divided up in such a way that it is believed that they were partitioned in a way to mimic the Pentateuch. They were partitioned in a way that it has a definite beginning and it has this climax of lamenting and then it goes into the the great reign and, and praise of God at the end. And I know it sounds a little strange, but you know, almost every psalm has one of two type of, of uh, central themes to it. Many of them are lamenting. And I know that I can remember when I was in college, uh, the, the music teacher said, never sing hymns in church with a minor key. You know, and I would I rebelled against that from day one, and I'm still like that. There, there are so many psalms that lament sin and lament the condition that we live in in this world. But there's the other type of psalm that praises God and lifts up wonderful praises, acknowledging his greatness and his power and his unlimited uh, power to save and that he alone saves. And so you have this back and forth. Um, it's not a struggle. It's a tension. 
It's a little bit of, oh, you know, like Job. And then at the end, you know, and there, but there's always the light of God coming and the power of God shining through. And so uh, this is what, this is how the Psalms are organized. Now, in the very first book, it goes from Psalm 1 to 41. And out of these, uh, many of them are written by David. As a matter of fact, I believe about all except four of these are written by King David. And it does uh, set the stage. Many of the times that David was pursued by Saul, he has this lamenting and, and so on. But as it progresses on, we see in book two, uh, these are Psalms 42 to 72. And most of these are, shall we say, the beginning of this is written by the sons of Korah. These were uh, Levites. And so the very last psalm in this particular book is written by King Solomon. And he begins to present the Christ as the perfect king. In the third book, Psalms 73 to 89, it seems to be heavy on the lamenting side and it gets into a darker tone. But not a dark tone the way the world would consider the word dark. It's more of uh, the breaking of the heart of the sinner or of the, uh, of the follower of Christ and of God where they're under the burden of this world and they're being attacked and, and they may even feel abandoned at times, but it always comes through where the light of God comes and they get to see the power of God. And uh, at the end of this, we go into book four and we can see coming out of that lamenting period, we begin with Psalm number 90 through 106, where Psalm 90 is a book or is a psalm by Moses, that great song of Moses. And uh, it were, it were simply many of the things in that song are in that, uh, in that song or in that psalm. And you'll find it's also uh, a recurring theme in the book of the Revelation. Later on in one of the visions, there will be a comparison between the song of Moses and that new song that's sung around the throne. And so with these, um, we see that many of these are summarizing the, the, the dealings of our Lord as, uh, shall we say, before all the kings came upon the scene. And so I believe that the writer was trying to organize, that is the, organ, the people organizing the, the, the Psalms, wanted the reader to understand that even before the, the kings and Israel was formed into a nation, God was working among his people. Because many of these psalms are very old. Uh, and, and some of them, we don't even know who wrote them. And so, at the very end of this section, 106, we see that uh, it ends with a psalm that says how the Lord reigns. And how all the darkness that was uh, presented from the hearts of the, of the psalm writers before, uh, they were all dispelled. The very last section, Psalms 107 to 150, is a, is a, these are where the psalms of praise start to outnumber the psalms of lament. And within this particular section, we have Psalm 119, the longest psalm in, the, in this collection. And it's a psalm written uh, in a style where there's a certain section for every alphabet of the Hebrew language, the Hebrew uh, tongue. And uh, at the very end of this book, there are five particular psalms that are called the Hallelujah Psalms. And it ends with praising God who is on high, that he is the king of all. And uh, just before that, 
there's also a section that's called the, the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 of these. So I want you to look at this where we see at the very end, we see how the theme of the last section is God gathering his people out of the nations. And then they're ascending up into Jerusalem. And we can see that even now, God's people, aren't we not crying? God, call us out of the nations. Call, call us by your gospel. Group us together and enable us to come together under the gospel. And then we ascend up to Zion. That is, we wait for God to bring Zion and New Jerusalem down to us. And so this is a very wonderful book, a collection of psalms, something that we should be including in our services all the time. We do read a psalm every Sunday worship, but I would like to also start uh, bringing more explanations to the psalm as we go along. Now, there, the particular song, psalm that I'm starting tonight would be psalm number one, but I want you to um, take psalm one and psalm two, and understand that these are anonymous. But these two particular psalms are almost the introduction to the entire section of all 150. It's as though Psalm 1 and 2 is describing uh, all of the psalms put together and the purpose of them, why we even have them. In the very first one, we see a picture of the way that a righteous man is happy. Happy is the man. That's what we'll be looking at tonight. Happy is the man. And it goes into, at the, at the beginning, what he does not do. Happy is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And with this, I would say that it's a pretty normal thing for God to come and tell us, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and happy is the man that does not. But if we turn that around, we could say this in a different way. We could say something like this. Cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. But instead, we have a vision of people approaching God with hope. Happy is the man. And then look at us. There are things that we have to say, we cannot do these things. And so um, there are many people, and I agree with them, that say Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really have a vision into who Christ is. Happy is the man who loves the light of God's word, who walks in this way. And we have to say, oh, that man is happy. I wish it were I. But it is Christ. Do you see? Happy is the man who is that person of God. And then the second Psalm has to do with the perfect reign of the Messiah Christ as King. And so we have these two psalms talking about the righteous man and then the glorious king. And so we see Christ presented in these as images where we look, get to look at his person and then we get to look at his accomplishments. And is that not part of the gospel where we get to hear and understand who our loving Christ is and what he's done for us? So let's take a look closer at this psalm. This song has, psalm has six verses in it. It can be divided up easily into two different sections, verses 1 through 3, and then the remainder, uh, 4 and 5, actually go together. But we can put 6 together with this, two separate parts. Now, the very first part describes how there is a contentment and happiness of a godly man. It says what he does and what he receives. 
In the next section, we'll take a look at a very stark contrast between the godly and the ungodly. It reveals the ungodly's future, but it also reveals his ultimate doom. So let's take a look and read the scripture and make some observations. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Now we can see an obvious you know, division of this verse where there are three things really said. Is really, they're amazing. They say so much in such little time. But the very first thing I want to mention that it says, it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount by the Lord, is it not? Blessed is the man. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And here we have, blessed is the man. Now the word blessed means happy. Now, <laughs> to me, uh, it, it's almost like if you, if you were to pick up a magazine and you looked through the articles and you would say, oh, there's a banana bread recipe here or there's an invasion going on in Turkey or this and that. But many people would say, oh, this is what happiness is, this is how you can be happy. I would imagine many people would thumb to that particular article and see, why am I not happy anymore? Or why I mean, is there a way for me to be happy? And here we have the beginning of this psalm that says, blessed is the man or happy is the man. When I think of happiness being pursued by this people, by any people, by, by any sinner, why, it seems as though people feel that they're owed happiness. As a matter of fact, we even have an, a Declaration of Independence that says that a man has a, uh, an unchallengeable right to the pursuit of happiness. And I can, I can agree with that. Mother, no man should deny another man the, his pursuit of happiness. Now, he doesn't owe him happiness, but he should be able to pursue it. And now we have scripture from a God who will not and cannot lie. And he describes a man who is truly happy. Now, when we think about what makes people happy, I think we get a window into their soul. Wouldn't it be sad if, you know, if someone actually, you know, uh, uh, shall we say, they, they have a hatred of someone or something so much that it actually makes them happy when that thing is destroyed or that person has ill fortune and something bad happens to them and they say, I'm a happy man now. And they say, oh, that's a sad window into their soul, isn't it? And so what makes a man happy? I think that gives us an understanding of who we are. Um, if <laughs> Do we want to be like flies that buzz around a dunghill or we would rather be like bees that, that are attracted to honey and when we take a look at what God has in his word the beauty of himself the beauty of who God is the holiness of God and it says oh this is the man who is made happy that doesn't listen to the counsel of the word who doesn't stand in the way of sinners and where they stand and does not sit and become uh, an expert in sin but yet this man delights in the law of God he is drawn to it like a bee to honey, like bees to flowers. And wouldn't it be a sad story to be drawn to the, the, the weak and the beggarly elements of the world, like I said, like flies to a dunghill. It would be the saddest thing I can imagine. And yet here we have a whole world of sinners drawn away by anything that is not God. They can all, you can almost uh, describe anything. As long as it's not God, they might take a look at it. So... Let's take a look at the obvious divisions that are in this one verse. 
We can see that it's divided into three different sections. Happy is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Now, it's one thing that we can see how this is uh, very wise, but I, I do I, th I think it is very revealing how wise God is in talking to us and saying, the good thing is that, you know, this man is happy because he does not do this. Well, I think it's descriptive of who we are. Very descriptive. Happy is the man that does not do that. When we think about that, the wicked can actually be described as, you know, uh, sad and cursed is the man who actually looks for a counsel to continue walking in his way where he ignores and hates his God. And, and cursed is the man that after living his life, after walking this path, he takes counsel, or in this way, he, he, he actually has a way of saying, I've made my decisions, I see uh, that this counsel is doing me good, and he continues his life down this path. And then he becomes skilled at his sin, skilled in his debauchery or in his uh, deceptions. And then he becomes a, a teacher of it and becomes someone who sits and other people come and sit at his feet. He becomes, uh, gets his doctorate in this sin. And he becomes one of those that scoffs at God. He becomes those that write books about why there is no God. And people applaud him and have them on Oprah. And he becomes one of these best read, you know, best read people on New York Times sellers and so on. Uh, the very successful wicked. It is a sad thing that this world is like that. But when we walk, we should be saying to ourselves, if I did not do that, if I did not walk according to the counsel of this world, how blessed could we be? Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel. Now that means, I don't know how to live my life. Who can tell me? Who can help me? My brother, my dad, my mom, my teacher. Who can help me live my life? And so the sinner comes and they give them advice. And then they try it out and they start living as though God is dead. As though there is no God, there's no one to give themselves an account. And then, after they live their life a little bit, they begin to form their opinions. They begin to form their, um, the things that they want to take a stand on. Whenever I read this type of verse, I think of what Martin Luther said. Here I take my stand. I cannot be moved from this. And the sinner, the wicked, are going to come a point in their life where they say, you know, I've learned a few things, and I cannot be moved from this position. I take my stand here, along with the others who agree with me. We seem to have a good consensus of wisdom, and yet this is worldly wisdom, a wisdom based upon the skill of hiding what is usually true. You think about comparing the wisdom that comes from the book, from the Bible, and then you compare it to the wisdom of the world, and almost always God has absolute truth, but the world depends upon the fact that we cannot know what's in another man's heart. 
that deception is truly in this life a power that the wicked wields. They wield it like a sword, like a weapon, like a defense. Ignorance is not always going to justify you from breaking the law, even though it's used many times as a defense in, in court. But I want you to know that when you stand before God, there is no ignorance. You cannot plead that. You cannot bring that before the Lord. We're well, coming back to this as we go on. There are many ideas here that need to be addressed, but we'll get them uh, and attach them when, with, with the other verses to come. Verse number two reads like this. This is what a man does not do. A happy is a man that does not do this. However, the positive way of approaching this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is where he becomes happy. And the description, happy is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of God. Now at this time, there was an all probability when this psalm was written, only the Pentateuch was written. And we have to you know, take that into account. And so when we think about the Pentateuch, we think about the books that Moses penned. And so we have the law of God. We have the shadows and types of the offerings of Christ. We have the implementation of the priesthood, the looking forward of many of the promises that are in the first five books of the Bible. A great deal of wisdom there, a great deal of information. And I, I would like to just kind of make a side comment about the law of God. When it comes to the use of the, of the words, we have to be careful because sometimes we hear preachers, they'll say, you can't be saved by the works of the law. That's a true statement. But what they mean is this, you cannot keep the law and take that obedience and offer it to God as a justification for your sin. That's what they mean by that. But there's another way of saying this. What is the work of the law? If we say the law has a certain work, what is its job to do? And Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say it like this, the work of the law is to convict you of sin and it produces a guilty conscience. That is the work of the law. That's its purpose. But the works of the law, that is what we are expected to do, to work, to do good things, to perform the law, but they cannot be offered to God in exchange for our salvation. But it is truly knowledge of God that is indispensable. It is so valuable. The light of God's law is a character study into its very heart. We cannot know our God unless we understand his law. Amen. The very law of God is like, oh, truth is such a value. You know, the, the, the love of what is virtuous is such a value. And yet, you know, we, we learn of the power of God, but it is the beauty of his character that we see in the law. We can rest in his power, but you can rest your soul upon a holy God who has provided a work to save you from your sin. And that power is just the, the, the added security of his holy character. And so the law is very, very good. Now, we tend to think that, you know, we delight in the Lord by, you know, this is like an instruction to go home and read your Bible. And it is. I'm not saying it isn't. But many of the people at this time, they did not have a Bible in their house. 
They had the Pentateuch that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And people would proclaim the law. They would come and hear it read. They would hear it preached. You would hear it and people would write it upon, uh, uh, upon their door. And they would wear it sometimes. But many times it would be memorized. And in context, this probably... And remember, you know, I'll tell you when I'm not too sure about things. But this is probably saying this. People had committed the word to memory. And then when they meditate on it, they will repeat it to themselves so that they can think of it. So that they can understand it. And almost in saying it, asking God, this is right, right? This is, this is the way I understand it. And so they repeat the word of God in their hearts and mind. And they think about it. They think about it during the day, and they meditate upon it during the night. It's all the time. It's not something that is just a one-time event. It is something that you would think about and bring up in your heart and mind during the bad times. But it is also during the good times. It's during the day and during the night. During the good times, during the bad times. It's like marriage. During the thin times and the thick times. The rich times, the lean times, the easy times, and the hard times. It is like Job. Oh, if can we receive good and not evil? And of course, those words means something that's pleasant, something that's unpleasant, something that's evil to endure, not evil wicked. So the question that we may have is this, is that you may be able to say easily, well, I have not walked according to the counsel of the wicked. But the question is this, do you delight in knowing who God is? And do you delight in the light of God's law? Because this is, this is the side of the coin that has two different things. We're going to see that the wisdom we find here is the same type of wisdom we get in the gospel. There is the walking away of sin, walking away from it. Blessed is the man who does not live this life of sin. But also blessed is the man that seeks the light of his word and of law. And so you have repentance and you have faith. This is the very same thing in the gospel. You have God commands all men everywhere to repent. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved. This is one act, one, one heart. To actually embrace Christ is to leave your sin. And so blessed is this man that is able to say, I'm not listening to the world anymore. I'll not take my stand with them anymore. And I am not going to be the expert in what is wrong. Or shall we say, I'm the best deceiver in the world. Because that is exactly what worldly wisdom is all about. You see, the devil is a liar. But he was a liar from the beginning. And he is the father of it. And all that is not true is all the weapons that he has. You think about it. Anything that the devil can do to us is given to us and by way of deception. And who were we? We're not very smart and we don't know what's at the end. We don't know where it came from. And the devil wants us to believe all the smart people around us. But we have someone that tells us the truth. Our God does. He has always told us the truth. This verse reads this, 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Let's go to the next verse. Remember that this particular section is the section that says, this is the godly man, and then the next section is, this is what happens to the wicked. So we're still looking at what happens to the good. The first verse was expressed in a negative way. They do not walk by the advice and the, uh, of peers of, of sin and, and the mentors that are even worse. And in the second verse, uh, they are positively, they delight in, a med in the meditations of God. Now this third verse is a simile. He is like this. And so we're going to get something a little bit more of, of what a, a true follower of Christ is like. He's like a tree. Now that's an interesting thing. You know, uh, I don't know if, if someone was up on a stage and they were handing out awards and uh, they're going to give a, the tree trophy. This is for you. You're like a tree. And people, thanks. You know, uh, thank you for calling me a tree. But when we think about this a little more, it is, it is an amazing simile. It is an amazing thing that we should be compared to a tree. Every time uh, I think of these things, and I have to say this is just, just the way my mind works. I apologize, and then I don't apologize. It's just, it's just me. When I think of this, I consider Job, the oldest book, and yet there is so much wisdom in that book. And then I compare it to the very beginning when Adam was created in this garden and there were so many trees, so many trees. He could have looked at all these trees, the fruit of the trees. And uh, it was that tree of the knowledge of good and evil where Satan, with his deception, with his lie, have you not, you do not have the capability of eating from any of these trees, of all of these trees, I can, you know, it reminds me of when Satan came before God and God said, um, have you considered my servant Job? And it's a little bit like, have you considered all the trees in my garden? Have you considered my tree Job? And uh, I can hear Satan, well, yeah, you've hedged about this man. You have fertilized him. You have watered him. You have given him everything that he's ever needed. You take that hedge away, and we'll see what this tree does. We'll see if there's going to be fruit on this tree. We'll see what happens. Uh, let's take a look at some of the descriptions that we have here. The first thing we see that he is like a tree that is planted. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when I was a young boy, I, I, I was able to go outside and go across a few driveways and head into a forest. I don't think we call them forests. We call them the woods, you know. And uh, there would be trees there. Nobody planted these trees. They, they just grew. There's no rhyme or reason where they were, but they were fun to play around. But when you had a tree in your yard, that tree had to have a purpose. It's either going to give you shade, or it's going to be pleasant to look at, or it's going to give you fruit. You don't plant a tree without a purpose on it. If you don't, you just have the woods. You just have chaos that's fun to play in. But by your house, when someone says, wouldn't it be nice if we had an apple tree right here? Wouldn't it be nice if we had shade on the side of the house right here? 
is something that God does. God plants this tree. He plants his people. He knows and plans, and there is no accident about who his people are. He provides this. They are like a tree planted with streams. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, the interesting thing about this is that I do not have in my yard streams of water. If you want to kill a tree, just plant it in Florida. I'll tell you. Because Florida, for the most humid state in the Union, and it rains every day, you can plant a tree in Florida and that tree will starve of water almost immediately unless you water it. It's an amazing thing to grow up in Florida if you're a tree. You have like a foot of sand, and this sand does nothing but leach water. You pour water on the ground here, and it goes right down or it's evaporated, and you dig down afterwards, it's dry as flour. It's just dry. But the Lord says, I'm going to plant a tree, my people, my loved one, and I'm going to have streams of water, and I will provide more than one. Now, in Florida, if a tree lasts long enough, it will reach, the roots will reach uh, the water table. I mean, there, now the water table isn't really that deep. Maybe a foot in some places, maybe two feet in some places. Depends on how greatly high you are above the sea level here. But if you dig down far enough, you'll get water. But that tree has got to survive long enough to hit water. And then once those roots hit water, that tree's going to live. It's going to live a long time. The only thing that will take that tree down is a hurricane. Why would a hurricane take it down? Because you, it's in sand. <laughs> and you would have hurricane winds coming around. The roots, if they go out sideways, like a live oak would, it takes a strong wind to push it over. And we are like that. It takes a strong wind. But you have seen trees that have been almost toppled, have you not? My neighbor has two of these very large trees. They're beautiful. But Francis made them lean. Huge, big trees, beautiful, and they're like this. I don't know how he got them back. I think he paid someone to pull them back in place a little bit. But many times, wind is an image of God in the scriptures that describes his power, the power of God. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. Remember how John in his gospel described how the work of the Spirit is? And many times it is, it is like that. Let's go on with the idea that there are many different rivers supplying. God provides his grace. He provides his providence. He provides the knowledge of who he is. He provides justice when needed. He provides justification. All the things that we need, God provides. Not just one stream. There are many streams. And he says that they yield its fruit. God's people yield fruit. Now, I've heard it preached when I was a young boy that the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. This was um, one way of getting people to, to bring other people into church. I, I, I think that's a silly thing to say. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a fabrication, and it's something that should not be done. You should teach what the Scriptures, sees, what the scriptures teaches. The fruit of the Christian is love, joy, meekness, all these things mentioned by the Apostle Paul. And I'll tell you what. You produce that fruit, and the analogy is this. People will want that fruit, and you know what's in the fruit? The seed. 
And so people will want kindness. They will want forgiveness. And it's going to be spread out by the seed. I have a pond in my backyard. There's all kind of fish in it. And uh, I, I put a few in, but not all of them. You know how they got there? Birds. You know, birds will come in. They'll go from pond to pond. The eggs will be on their legs. But a lot of times they'll just drop the seeds in. Okay, with droppings. And why? Because the birds will eat the fruit. And they'll drop these seeds. Or the birds will eat another fish. Or they'll, they'll have ways of, of spreading it around. Look. God has his way of evangelizing. Now, I'm not saying you don't have to evangelize. No, no, no. I'm saying that there are effective ways to evangelize. You know what the most effective way to evangelize is? You love God in front of your family, in front of your neighbors. You love God all the time. And that will spread the gospel. You don't have to be like a, I'm sorry, Art, a used car salesman. <laughs> you don't have to be like that person that's famous for not telling the truth. We are not like that. They have their fruit in season. Now, there's nothing like going out to your tree and seeing the fruit on it, and it's not ripe yet, and you say, you know what, I'm going to pick it anyhow. And then you are so disappointed. Your impatience is not there, is it? But God says... My fruit that I will have my people produce will be in season. It'll be appropriate. It has a time in which it's ready. Many times for this tree, it has the fruit in this season. In this tree, we'll have a fruit in that season. Some people really flourish in their later years. Some people in their younger years. Some people have... The, God has his own appropriate time for his people to have their fruit. It says also that its leaf does not wither. There is a great treasure of promises in the scripture. And the very idea that even the best, the flower of man grows up and the sun blights him and he withers and in the evening it's gone. That is, that is what the scriptures tell us about what are we? What is flesh? The flesh is like grass that grows up and, and just goes away. Well, the, the Christian is not like that in that their soul remains. All the treasure they have toward God will remain. Their leaf will always be green. Everything that the Christian does will prosper. And you may say, oh my goodness, now we're going to get into the prosperity gospel, are we not? What does a Christian put his hand to do? Does he listen to the counsel of the ungodly? Does he take his stand with the, uh, the sinners of the world that, that make their profits from disinformation, misinformation, from lying? Do, do they sit and listen to the, uh, uh, to the experts in sin? No, they don't. If a man delights in the law of God, if a man delights in his God, what his hand will do will prosper. Because where is his hand? Doing the will of his Father. Doing the will of his God. Seeking out his path. 
seeking out where can I take my feet that will take me to my God? Where is Zion? Where is his holy city? Where is the place that he promised? And his path goes in that direction. And you know what? That's going to prosper. It will prosper. God has designed this tree with rivers and will give him the things of his heart. Let's go on to verse number four. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now, it does, you know, this, the most interesting thing about this verse is this. The Christian is like this, but the sinner is like this. It's not as though we're all kind of the same. No, we're not. They are exactly the opposite. The Christian has his path going toward Christ and toward God, toward the new Jerusalem. And the sinner is not like that. The, the, the lover of God, the one who delights in the law of God, is like a tree with fruit. But the, sin, the wicked are not. They are like the chaff. The chaff. This simile is very interesting, is it not? One is fruitful. One is, you anticipate every day the picking of it, the sweetness of it, the greatness of it, uh, the very grace involved in it. But the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. You're either dead or you're alive. There is no in-between here. Now, when I think of this, I think of that scripture in John chapter 3. And let me read it to you. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I think it's a, an amazing thing that, that, that the apostle here is comparing the moving of the Spirit to the wind. Because... You know when the wind is blowing on you. It's obvious. If you've ever been through Oklahoma, Oklahoma has the wind blowing all the time. If the wind ever stopped, you would go, oh, what's happening? Because it's always blowing. No one ever says, I wonder where this wind came from. Or I wonder where it's going. There's no way to know that. Truly, there's no way to know that. And, you know, I've read some funny things in my life where you know, now I think someone just made this up, actually. But I read one time, and I think someone just made it up. But they say, where did the wind come from? It's from the trees moving. And when the trees move, it creates wind. Well, I believe some people think like that. But I actually think that the wind moves the trees. But where does the wind come from? I guess we can get the scientists in here and tell us about how heat and cold and the movement of the oceans and uh, Inya and, you know, or does she make wind? Or no, the ocean's you know, warming up. Um, I guess we could figure that out. But when we look at the scriptures, the wind is used many times. Have you remembered how when Job was being tested by Satan, that he challenged God to remove the hedge? And God said, yes, I'll move the hedge. You can touch him, but do not touch his life. Do not touch his life. And Satan removed his property. It was burned up. Satan removed all that he owned. Foreigners came, looted him. Fire fell down from heaven, destroyed his property. But when it came to his family, 
he lost all his children. You know how he lost his children? Wind. The wind came and took, and took the house down. Now, Satan has a way of imitating the works of God. Satan can bring in the whirlwind. But at the end of the book of Job, do you know how God speaks to Job? He speaks to him from the whirlwind. God has his way in the wind. He even teaches us in the, in the prophets, you sow to the wind, you're going to weep the whirlwind. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But we may say, that's like chaos coming after us. It's like, this is, there is no control about this. A hurricane or a tornado, it just comes out of nowhere. And, it, and we cannot even know where it's going to go and what kind of damage it does. I'm telling you this. God knows everything about it. He speaks from the whirlwind. And when he comes, the power, even the word spirit means breath. The movement of air that God comes and we know that God moves upon the heart and where it comes from, I can say it comes from God and only God knows. And where does it go? It takes us to God and how it gets us there, only God knows. But I know that it happens and I know that it's real and that there is a, a genuine way of resting in this. I want to read something about this chaff and how that there is, uh, the chaff is going to be moved by the wind. Did you, did you, did you catch that? It has, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Do you think it's a um, coincidence that the words that the wind drives this chaff away? It is the wind that does it. Does the wind drive away the grain? No, it does not. That is only the way it's separated. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, we have John the Baptist saying this. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but there is one mightier than I that cometh and the latches of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now I have met Christians who have said, I want to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I, I suggest that you do not pray that. I suggest that you pray that you be baptized by the Holy Ghost. That is a good prayer, but you can skip the fire. Because the next verse reads this, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. You see, the fan is in God's hand. It is the wind that blows, and he will gather his wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Do you see, God is saying, I will baptize you. Would you, uh, everyone is going to be baptized. It's either going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit of God, or it's going to be baptized by fire. There is, you know, this is not the fire of the whole... The fire of the Holy Ghost is something you want to flee from, folks. It's something you want to escape from. But it is, the fan is in his hand, and it is the wind that blows his chaff. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Do you see how the positions are changed here? We begin by reading uh, the verses. Let me read to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. 
And here we have, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I'll say you this. Let me read it a different way to you. Unhappy is the man who is forced to defend himself in the judgment. It will be a hopeless attempt. He cannot make that stand. He will not stand with God's people either. He will not stand with them. And they will not be able to make that defense. Unhappy is the man who finds himself surrounded by those who delight themselves in the law of God. He will not make his stand among them. Judgment is from God, but the man is the one who positions himself and says, I'll take my stand here in front of his wrath. He makes his stand there, and he'll not endure it. He will not endure the judgment of God. Standing is what's happening here. But they will have no defense. The wicked will not even recognize their own defense on that day. You see, deception is used here. People have fooled themselves. They have lied to themselves. They believe, well, God will have to give an account to me on that day. Why did I, this happen to me? Why is that? And people say, what did I do to deserve this? When the day comes and light is truly given to the man who is accustomed and must have deception to even live his life from day to day, when that, light, when that deception is taken away and he is standing in the light of God, he'll say, I, I have no defense. I don't even want to be around people that know the truth. I am shamed to even be around God. Hell will be a place where they will hate to be, but they will hate to be in God's presence also. They do not want to be there. They do not want to take their stand there. The wicked will not stand on that day in judgment. They will not want to stand with God's people. But then when they take, when they stand in judgment, they're going to come to realize that there is truly no hope for them. Let's read the last verse here. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way here is a word that means just a path. It is truly a way. And so the Lord knows this way. This is a way that the Lord teaches us by his law, by his word. It's a way that we ponder. It's a way that we think about. It's a way that we choose to take. It is a way and a path of godly decisions, of godly choices based upon the hungering and thirstings of a soul after the Spirit of the Lord. The path that we take is enjoyed. It is delighted in. Happier are those that are in that path. The wicked have their own path. Now, be aware, the wicked sought this path out. They have not said, oh, I don't even think about what I'm going to do. No, they think about it a lot. Do you think they want to be unskilled in the way they walk? No, they think about it. They even ask advice about it. They even ask the experts, how do I do this? How do I do that? I see you have what I like. How can I get that? Well, all you have to do is this and this. But do they actually please a holy God? That can get in the way. That can be a conflict 
that can achieve what you want in this world. The wicked have sought out their witty inventions. They have sought out and have been encouraged to live in that life. There's going to be wickedness in this world, and others will say, I take pleasure even in those who, uh, that, that take pleasure in them. I, good job, I like that, I identify with that. If you want to do it better, just ask me, I can help you with that. They have perfected this path. Isn't it the saddest thing you've ever heard? They have actually taught this path. They teach it in our universities. They teach it to our grade students. They teach it. This particular phrase where it says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows his people. He knows. He will say one day, you know, blessed, you know, come into the joy of the Lord. I know you. But the others will not. The word perish actually means, you know, I looked this up. It actually means that there is no way of escaping what is about to happen in this awful condition. No way of escaping. In Matthew 7, we'll read these words. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Blessed is the man who walks and delights in the law of God. But I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. One of the most beautiful things that we can bless God's name for is that he is true. He is truth. And that his word shows us what is truth. And the love of the truth. You seek it, you will find it. God has promised. And he will know the truth. The truth has set you free. And what is life? That we may know him. That we may know Christ. Oh, heaven will take this to a wonderful degree. We will know the truth of God. But what will the sinner do if he was there? The sinner would have nothing but the truth that exposes all the things that he is. He will not take his stand there. I thought about this man that cried out to Abraham and said, could you just please a few drops of water to cool my tongue for I am tormented in this place. If the waters of heaven, if the same waters of truth, the waters of the gospel came to this man, it would only wash away the lies and he would then still be even tormented more. He cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Sinners cannot be in his presence. Everything that's a blessing to God's people is a curse to the wicked. Now, I'm not saying, oh, please, I hope they suffer. No, 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 no. No one should desire that. No one wants the wicked to suffer. God does not take pleasure in the suffering of the wicked. He does not. But we must understand that the wicked are there by their choices, their path. They walk there. They talk there. They travel there. They become experts in getting there. They want to go there. And they're unhappy doing it. But they're even more unhappy knowing that God knows their heart. They must have a covering and deception. They'll call upon the rocks to cover them before the judgment day of God. Even those whom they've trusted, they will say, please represent me. 
but it'll only be to their futile end. Now, I'm going to end with this. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit over time, but I just want to finish this one application here. This particular psalm is a perfect representation of who Christ is. And the next psalm, which we'll be doing the next time I preach in the psalms, will be psalm number two, a perfect description of his work. We must follow the example of this man who is happy. Happy is the man who does not do the things that the cursed do, but his delight is in the law of God. And we must see that Christ will be the perfect ruler. And we'll see in this second psalm that he is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. I want you to consider this. This will be homework assignment. How can God rule this world, Christ, with a rod of iron? The law of God is like, you know, it, it's a sweet thing. But to other people, it's a hard thing. To, to the person who loves the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel is like the sweetness of having the sun shine on your face. And they melt in that grace. But the law of God to the wicked who hate God, they become hard as clay like a brick. I can remember the sun shining on the backyard when I lived in Oklahoma. That was clay. And man, you could not break that ground with a shovel. But then when it rained, it turned into to, to mud. But I could not, I bent a shovel trying to dig in my backyard. That is like the sinner. That sun, the gospel, the truth will make a man so hard. And God rules this world with his law. It's a rod of iron. You're either going to be broken by it or you will love it. It'll be a shepherd's staff. But if not, it'll be a rod of iron. In conclusion, we say this. Happy is the man who repents from his sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the happy man. That is the happy person. The man who repents, who does not walk in the way of the wicked, in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners, take his stand there. Neither does he sit to become a teacher of it either. To, become, to have his doctorate in it, to have disciples of sin. So let's live our lives according to our example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we want to thank you for 